bringing an agile development mindset to commercializing space. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Johnny Dyer, CEO of Muon Space. Welcome, Johnny. Hi, nice to be here. Give us a brief summary of your professional background, will you? Yeah, I mean, my background um, was largely in um, kind of aerospace. I was chief engineer for one of the very early um, new space companies called Skybox Imaging uh, for about seven years. We launched uh, remote sensing satellites and kind of were early in the wave of, of new space that we're seeing now. Um, and then I've done some other things as well. I, I most recently was uh, in Lyft's uh, autonomous vehicle group running uh, sort of hardware and systems engineering efforts. And um, in the process kind of picked up a lot of really interesting uh, uh, knowledge about sort of the robotic software and AI um, uh, revolution that's going on. Um, and so a lot of what I'm kind of really interested in is like, how, to, how do we take some of those things that are going on in those areas and apply them, uh, continue to apply them in space? How would you describe a software mindset and how does that apply to commercializing space travel? Yeah, I mean, I think the way to think about it is uh, you kind of have to take a historical perspective, right? So, you know, in the early days of computers, um, things were hard and costly to change. It was, you know, it, when you were punching cards for, when you had to punch cards to write programs, and then compile things overnight, you know, the, the cycle time was very long and, and there was a lot of emphasis placed on getting things right from the beginning because it was very costly if there were mistakes. Um, you know, as time went on, software got essentially free. Uh, it became free to, to, to kind of write new things, test them, compile them, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, you can kind of think of the cost of mistakes as having gone to zero in software in some ways. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that really kind of came to fruition strongly when the, you know, the PC came out sort of in the 80s and the 90s, um, but it took a while for sort of the software world to catch up from sort of a development process perspective. They were very still, you know, th there was a lot of traditional kind of baggage associated with the old ways of doing things. And it was more in the late 90s and kind of early 2000s that things like, you know, agile software development started um, becoming a thing. And that was really embracing the fact that the cost of change and the cost of, of, of um, problems was basically zero. And so you wanna take a much more iterative and sort of uh, risk tolerant approach to development. And I think we're seeing something very similar um, in space where historically it's been, you know, same, same exact story. It's been very hard to change things. It's been very expensive if you have problems uh, to the point where like, you know, a, a billion dollar space mission uh, has to know that it's going to work when it launches. There's no tolerance for failure, essentially. You know, it's kind of the old Apollo 13 thing where, you know, uh, uh, failure is not an option, right? And I think what we're seeing is that um, as the kind of cost of failure has dramatically decreased and we've started to have more ability to iterate quickly in the space world, um, we need to start thinking about how we do that, uh, kind of leveraging some of the things that have uh, gone on in the software world in terms of mindset and approach. So like you said, then human lives are at stake. So what's the right balance between leveraging the accumulated experience of the traditional aerospace world and moving fast and breaking things? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Obviously, I mean, I don't think this is a, you know, I don't think you can universally apply this. If there's a human life at stake, you have to take a, there's a certain level of rigor and, um, and, and sort of diligence required if you're going to do something. But, but the, the reality is that, you know, the vast majority of activity that's going on in the space world right now does not involve humans. It's, it's largely robotic systems, whether they're satellites or 
um, you know, interplanetary probes. And in those, in those cases, you know, again, I think you have to look at it from sort of a, um, a cost of failure perspective. If you, can, uh, if you can afford to take multiple iterations on something and learn as you go, then you really need to think hard about how you, uh, how you kind of confront the upfront uh, development effort. And really, th I think speed becomes a critical thing. You really want to move quickly and iterate quickly rather than spending you know, huge amounts of time and money upfront uh, trying to get something perfect. That's really the key. I think that's really the key learning from software. Now, I think, like you said, if there's, if there's a, uh, something that's so critical that it's gonna endanger human life, or you know, there's still certain types of missions that are so complex, a mission to Mars, for instance, uh, is so complex and so difficult that it's gonna be difficult to make the same arguments in terms of the cost of failure. And I don't think in those cases, you, you necessarily need to completely upset the Apple Part. I still think there's a lot of lessons that are being learned um, on the on the you know kind of the smaller mission, less expensive side that can be applied in those areas. They just have to be applied a little bit more carefully. So then, do you innovate, invent, and find answers for questions that have yet to be asked, or do you target your efforts to markets and problems that are already clearly defined? I mean, I think in a perfect world, you want to do both because, you know, there's there's plenty of space um, in aerospace and in the space world, the commercial space world for disruption right now. I think there's a lot of companies out there. Um, you know, I recently did an interview with Swarm um, uh, who are basically disrupting existing markets uh, by kind of taking this approach. Um, but I also think that, you know, um, when the cost of, of deploying something in space, of getting data back from space, um, starts falling below some threshold, it also opens up entirely new things that have never been done before, right? So there, there may be, there's, I'm sure there are many applications out there that, um, you know, have a lot of value, but have never even been attempted um, with space missions because the cost was so high. And as that comes down dramatically, I think people need to keep a very open mind to doing things that were potentially done in other ways um, from space instead. And, you know, I think a perfect example of that is sort of what SpaceX is doing right now with Starlink, right? You know, historically, communications have been, uh, especially high bandwidth communications, broadband, um, has always been focused on ground infrastructure, whether it's fiber or DSL, or, you know, in some cases, you can imagine like the LTE networks and the cell networks as um, kind of constituting that. And what, you know, Elon's insight has been is that um, the cost of space has, of, of doing things in space and the scale at which you can do things in space has improved so much now that those technologies are competitive with terrestrial technologies for delivering broadband to users. And I think that's that's a good example of a case where, you know, there was a known application and a product that was very valuable, uh, but, but, you know, people had not really seriously considered doing it from space until recently. Speaking of disruption, what are the 2021 milestones for private enterprise in space? What do you see getting accomplished in the coming year and what challenges uh, will we have to overcome to get there? Um, I think that one of the big things I'm excited about, uh, if I kind of look at the ecosystem of a lot of, especially the small companies working in this area, is really seeing businesses kind of take off. There's been a lot of seeds planted in a lot of areas um, in terms of building out the basic technology, capability, deploying systems, um, and starting to develop product and getting revenue. Um, and I think several, you know, several of the entities are right on kind of the verge of, of really starting to build explosive businesses. And that's what I'm really excited to see. And I think we'll start to see that in 2021. Um, I think beyond that, 
um, I think there's a lot of, in this sort of ecosystem, um, it, it needs to mature. So right now, um, a lot of the, if you want to do something in space, a lot of it is still very much a DIY. You have to kind of piece to either build everything yourself or piece together things from what, what I would call a fairly fragile ecosystem, both in hardware and software. And I think, you know, in some ways, again, I, I'll make the analogy back to kind of the PC industry in the 80s when, you know, if you wanted a PC, you had to buy a kit and put it together yourself. And so that kind of inherently limits the accessibility of a lot of these technologies. And I think what I, I think what we're going to start seeing, I don't know if it'll be in 2021, but certainly in the next few years is a lot of standardization, a lot of um, significant improvements in the supply chain, both hardware and software that enable people to put to put together missions in ways that are not so much kind of a, a DIY pick your own uh, uh, sort of adventure way, but you can actually uh, ha have some confidence that uh, big pieces are available. You can start assembling them quickly together into whatever you're trying and, and really focus more on the product rather than having to build out all the technology. Johnny Dyer, CEO at Muon Space. Thanks again for your time, Johnny. If somebody wants to connect with you, how can they do that? Um, generally, LinkedIn is the best uh, best place to contact me. Just ping me a message and I'll, I'll happily respond. There you go. And find more of my interviews right here on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.